you've been visiting this church, you'll know that we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 4 today, picking up at verse 13, and I can assure you this is a fascinating uh, subject that we're going to be looking at today. So, uh, let's read from this passage. From verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, hear the Word of God. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. About times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace, safety, Destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-controlled. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are in fact doing This is an amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? And what's been written here has been written for our encouragement. Twice Paul in his letter says, I'm telling you these things so that you will be encouraged. Verse 418, encourage each other with these words. Sorry, Chapter 418, chapter 511, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. I hope you are encouraged by these words. I hope you are looking forward to the return of Jesus to this world. He's going to come and sort out this mess that people aren't going to be able to sort out. He's going to come and rescue us. And at that point, we're going to inherit, receive salvation. It's going to be a glorious day. The righteous are going to be vindicated. The unrighteous, the ungodly are going to be judged and punished. 
all wrongs are going to be made right. It's going to be a wonderful, glorious day when Jesus comes back. That's why I hope you're encouraged by the subject material. And after Jesus returns, he will bring about the end of the age and ultimately will create a new earth and there'll be new heavens and everything will be restored as it was in Eden at the beginning. And the, thank you. And the promise of Revelation 21 will have come to pass. Now the dwelling of God will be with men and he will live with them. We will be his people and God will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear. This is the, the hope that we have as Christians. And Paul writes this, I'm writing these things to you so that you will be encouraged, so that you can encourage one another. But there's a second motivation for what Paul writes here. And here it is. He says, A, I want you to be encouraged by what I'm telling you. And B, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware about the return of Jesus to this world and what's going to happen. I don't want you to lack knowledge about Jesus' return to this world. And more specifically, he's saying, I'm talking to those of you who've lost loved ones, who were believers in the Lord. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, Christians who, who die. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who, who have no hope. Paul makes the point here that though Christians do experience grief, and it can be deep grief, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Death is still painful, but we have a different understanding about what death is. Here are five ways in which Christians grieve differently to those out there who, who have no hope. Christians grieve differently because the Lord comforts and cares for us, and we know that. And yes, we, we experience grief, but, in the, but we know we're in the everlasting arms, that God loves us, that He's with us, that He cares for us. Christians grieve differently when they lose a loved one because we know we're going to see that person again. Very different to the depressing atheistic view that we're a bunch of molecules, we dissolve and that's it. The Christian view is that we're going to be reunited with our loved ones who have died in the Lord. We grieve differently because we know they're in a better place than they were when they were here with us. They're in a better place. Better by far is the comparison. 
And Christians grieve differently because we believe in the sovereignty of God. We don't always like what God does. I certainly don't always like it or understand it. But, but I accept the sovereignty of God, and that is a comfort to me. Christians grieve differently because we believe in the, the sovereignty of God. I'm not subject to fate. That is such an ungodly, unchristian idea. I'm subject to God's providence. And that changes everything for me. And another way in which Christians grieve differently is that we understand that God is so good and so powerful that He can use even the hard things in our lives for His glory and our good. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love Him. Friends, these are five reasons why Christians who lose loved ones do not grieve like other men, like those who have no hope. We have hope. We have hope. There's a wider principle I see in these scriptures. It's not spelt out. You need to, like, look a little bit closer. But I see a principle here that I want to share with you. And it's based on this idea. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant so that you will grieve like those that have no hope. There is a relationship between good theology and our happiness. And all the theological students said, amen, come on. There is a relationship between having good theology and our happiness. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to be aware of this, unaware of the stuff, ignorant of the stuff, because if you get it and you understand it, you won't grieve like those that have no hope. What we believe about God at a deep heart level really does affect your lived experience. Of course, it doesn't matter what you say you believe if you don't really believe it. That doesn't help. But if you really believe certain things about God, it truly will impact your life for good. When it comes to theology, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance can hurt us. The richer and deeper our theology, the better we will be able to cope with what life throws at us. And sooner or later, life throws stuff at all of us. I think of people who struggle with anxiety and, and, and fear in their lives. Learn more about the providence and sovereignty of God. And you'll find some of that anxiety just disappears because what we truly believe about God does impact our emotions and how we live our lives. There is a relationship between good theology and our happiness. Never think that 
having good theology is unimportant or unspiritual, that all you need is a simple faith in Jesus and everything's going to be okay. Good theology helps us to deal with life as it really is. Bad theology, simplistic theology, is like sticking a plaster on a broken bone. Going to do nothing for you. Superficial, wrong theology. Good theology, on the other hand, can sometimes be like good medicine. Very hard to swallow. (laughs) But in the end, what you need Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. For example, about those who fall asleep. Because the greater your understanding of God and the things of God and the purposes of God, the happier, more joyful, more peaceful, more contented you will be. Then Paul raises the question, where are Christians who have died? And the second question in this passage, and what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back? Let's deal with them each in turn, and they are difficult questions. Where are Christians who've died? Sure, their bodies may have been incinerated or buried, their molecules scattered into the air, who knows where. I read one famous scientist, and I think this is a legit, a legit um, scientific claim, that every one of us probably has an atom in our bodies that was actually in the actual body of Jesus when he walked this earth, because there's so many of them, and now they're spread around the world. But you don't have to believe that. But you can Google it. So we know that Christians who have died, their bodies have, have decayed, particularly those that were buried 2,000 years ago when this was written. So, so where are Christians who have died? We know where their bodies are, but where are they, their souls, the true you, the, the, the spiritual part? Paul tells us, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, He says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This phrase, fallen asleep, it's a euphemism for death. All cultures struggle to talk about death. It is a delicate subject. So we talk today about passed away, passed on the deceased, the departed, etc. They spoke about those who had fallen asleep. Jesus uses it here of Lazarus. Oh, our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. The disciples are a little confused. Okay, that's great. Then he'll wake up again. Jesus says, verse 14, no, 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 I mean he is dead. Fallen asleep means dead. It's the phrase used here in 1 Corinthians 11. It's used here in 1 Corinthians 15. Where are Christians now who have died? 
Well, we know from the Bible, they're with the Lord right now. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, as he thinks about his life and his impending death, he's in house arrest. And he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but for your sakes, I'm, I'm going to stay here. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. That's some other Greek or philosophical idea of what happens to people when they die. It's not a biblical idea. The, the Bible teaches that when Christians die, they go to be with the Lord. I think they're kind of in a spiritual form at that point because they too are waiting for the resurrection of the dead. But they are with the Lord and they are conscious. Jesus said to the thief on the cross who committed his life to the Lord in his dying moments, he said, today you will be with me in, in paradise. And the thief on the cross was no saint. In Revelation 6, there's this lovely picture of, well, it's not really a lovely picture. It's not very nice what's going on. But these are dead Christians who've been martyred, and they're saying to Jesus, they're in heaven. They're with in the presence of God, and they're saying, God, how much longer are you going to let this go on for? How much longer until you go down there and sort it out, Lord, and, uh, and judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These are people who've died in the Lord. They're, they're in the presence of God. They're not in where we're ultimately going to be one day with the Lord forever in the new heaven and the new earth, because that doesn't exist yet. But they're, they're, and they're kind of in a divine waiting room, as it were. The Old Testament called it Sheol. The New Testament calls it Hades, very different to hell. They're in the, the other side. They're, they're in a good place. It's better by far than here, but they're waiting for Christ to return as well. And Paul goes on to tell us the role these dead believers are going to play in the return of Christ. Here it is. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. And then he tells us again, I, according to the Lord's own word, we who are still alive, if that's us when Jesus comes back, we who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ, Christians that have died in the Lord, they're going to beat us to meeting Christ and being part of His return. Also in this passage, we're told in verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. One day, all deceased people are going to be given new bodies. There'll be the, the general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And those that have died in Christ are going to be the first to get resurrected bodies like Jesus. The dead in Christ, they will rise first. They will come with Jesus when He comes back 
into this world. The picture is of a, an entourage. When a king would come back from a victorious battle, there'd be a group marching with him. When Jesus returns to, this, to the earth, the dead in Christ will be with him. They're going to form part of his entourage. And then we're going to be zooted up, and we're going to join the entourage. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. Why is it going to be in the air? Because there's no place on earth big enough for us to all you know, be standing on one spot. So there's some other heavenly destination up there where we're all going to meet and come back en masse with Christ. The Greek word is caught up. It, it's, that's what's going to happen to us when Jesus comes back. It's, it's a word used of a raid. It's, it's, it's an action word, snatched away. We're going to be snatched away. We're, we're going to go into the clouds, which is a, always a picture of God's glory. That's how Jesus went. He disappeared into the clouds. We said the same Jesus is going to come back the same way he left. We're going to meet in the air because there's no place down here. Quite possibly the air over Jerusalem, perhaps over the Mount of Olives if you want the exact spot, but who knows. This is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 17 where he says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. The one's a Christian, the one ain't. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one a Christian, one not. One will be taken, the other left. This is referring to believers being snatched away, caught up to meet Christ in the air when he returns. A similar thing is described by Matthew. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. Two women will be grinding. One will be taken. Therefore, keep watch, for you do not know what day your Lord will come. It's difficult to imagine how this is all going to work out, given the numbers involved. But there you have it. That's what Paul writes here. I don't believe there's going to be a secret rapture. This business about people being snatched away, it's referring to the return of Christ. So one more passage I want to mention before closing. And that is that little song, Give Me Oil in My Lamp. I spoke slightly disparagingly about Give Me Oil in My Lamp. Somebody was upset by that. I just meant I didn't really rate the tune that highly. Give Me Oil in My Lamp. What is that song all about? It's not a camping song. In any case, the words would be, give me gas in my lamp. 
It's talking about the return of Christ. Give me oil in my lamp. It's a prayer, Lord, may I be ready when you come back. That's, that's what give me oil in my lamp is all about. It's, it's based on this parable in Matthew 25. There were 10 young women, and they were all expecting the groom to come. These are people who are awaiting the return of the Lord. And you know what happens? The groom doesn't come. Now, in our culture, we're used to the bride being late. Normally, the groom's there well ahead of schedule. But in this culture, it was the groom that showed up late. And this groom, who stands for Jesus, is coming very late. And so the ten women, the people that are waiting for the groom's return, they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and he never comes and then they fall asleep. And then he does come and they all wake up and now it's dark. And so they want to light their lamps and half of them find they're not really prepared for that moment. There's something lacking in their lives. They don't have oil in their lamps. And so they go off to get oil to try to make up for what's missing. And we read that the door was shut. It's a picture of the door to heaven. And later, once they've now got a bit of oil or whatever they went to get. Sir, sir, open the door. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. The Bible is at pains that we need to be ready for the return of Christ. What does it mean to, to have oil for your lamp? I don't want to push the metaphor too far, but I, I believe it means that when Jesus comes back with his surprise return, and it will be a surprise, he's going to come like a thief in the night. People are going to be saying, peace, peace, everything's cool, and then he's going to come, and it's going to be like a woman going into labor, ah, and there's going to be no turning back from that point, no putting things on hold. That's why we must all not be like the five virgins who weren't ready. We need to watch and pray and make sure that our lives are righteous. We need to make sure that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. If I can shock you even further, we don't want to be like that person that even makes it into the wedding feast of the Lamb and then gets thrown out because we're not in the, white, in the right clothes. Give me oil in my lamp. It means I'm prepared for when Jesus returns. That means I'm born again, I'm surrendered to, to the Lord, and I'm living a godly life that pleases Him. That's what it means to be ready and I would encourage you all to watch and to pray and to prepare. Let us pray. 
Lord, we pray that you would prepare us for your coming. We don't want to be asleep, giving ourselves to things that are unimportant. Lord, we want to be on the right side when things go down. Thank you, Lord, that for those of us that have lost loved ones, that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Thank you that those who die in the Lord are, are with you now. That when you return, Lord Jesus, they're going to be with you. And that we who love you are going to be, be caught up to join you and them in the air when you return. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us watching and praying and prepared. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.